Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 97 of The Morning After, back in the polar vortex, I am Jesse Kiefer. I'm Sari Kamen. Sari took over for me solo. Well, not solo. You had a fantastic co-host last week. Yeah, I had my friend Amanda Cargill. And we missed you, though. I I missed you, too, although I was very warm. I will say that I was in the sunshiny state of Arizona. I would say I am happy <laughs> for you. Well, I will say that you were in San Diego the week before. So. I will say you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of saying going Check. on. And what I will definitely say, and I'm sure that Sari will agree with me, is that the sunshine just doesn't stay with you when you come back here. It's just not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. I really tried to bring it back. It doesn't penetrate in the same way. (laughs) I don't think it's penetrated this guy in ages. (laughs) All right. Moving on. um, This is a family show. This is a family show. Um, Well, but again, I want to thank you. And it it was a rad show. And I, uh, you know, will also be leaving you for another two weeks. I'm a jet setter this these couple months. Yeah, you're just playing with my emotions. While I I kind of slightly wish one of the weeks I'm going away was to a tropical island so I could try to get some more of that sun. Um, I am going to France for the first time. This time I'm not as happy for you (laughs) (laughs) because you're not bringing me. (laughs) No, I I will try to bring back as much French culture as possible. Um, I will in not, the form of your accent. I will, yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly Are you gonna how bring I me speak back? French. Are you going to bring me back a beret and a baguette? I hope to God. Oh. I, I really hope the stereotypes are true. I really do. So yeah, we're going to um, to this incredible natural wine tasting called uh, Le Dive Boutel in the Loire Valley, and it is it's not strictly Loire Valley natural wine. It is wine from from all over the world, and I hear that there's a huge Georgian wine focus huh. um, this year. So super excited to check that stuff out. And then uh, for the first time in six years, or maybe the second time, Aaron and I will be having a solo vacation with just the two of us in Paris. Oh, that's amazing. Which is is way overdue. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that I recently learned on Facebook that you just celebrated an anniversary <laughs> of you, six yeah. years. Of six years, yeah. So mazel to you and Aaron. Yeah, Facebook. It outs me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. We went to uh, to Romans. I love Romans. And um, in uh, Fort Greene area, mm-hmm. which is part of the diner um, Marlowe and Sons crowd possibly my favorite of it all of them. It is so good. Um, I think it is because I'm partial to pasta, mm-hmm. and they do have a slight Italian kind of slant. Oh, definitely. Um, and as we were kind of scooting into our, our little seat, um, somebody next to me kind of like tugged on my shirt and was like, hey, hope you enjoy your dinner. And it was Joe Campanelli. No way. Yeah, yeah. So we ended yeah. up sitting next to him and um, you know, talking a little bit. Host and of being In the like, Drink at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Shout out, shout out. Um, but it was really, it was really good to see him. And I met his girlfriend for the first time. And, oh, she's um, lovely as well. We did our best to not talk and, you know, interrupt the, uh, the romantic evening that yeah. was happening. But yeah. You know what today is? Um, Sunday. It is Sunday. And all of my Australian friends, my like four Australian friends, um, are very, very excited because it's Australia Day. No way. Australia Day. It's I, Down Under Day. It's Down Under Day. And they're all like, what are you doing for Australia Day? And I was, you know, specifically at the bar. It's like, funny how your Australian friends sound like California surfers. They're like, what are you doing for Australia Day? <laughs> Mate. Mate. Um, no. I love you Australian friends. Uh, mostly I just have New Zealand friends. And so it's totally not related. Oh, those are Kiwis. Those don't count. <laughs> but it's just a smaller island off can the I coast of Australia. Can I say Kiwis on radio? Of course you can. Um, so they're like, what are you doing for Australia Day? I'm like, Nothing. <laughs> going to host my show. Going to host my show. And giving Australia Day um, a shout out. You know, maybe I'll drink some Australian Riesling. Oh, right? Um, okay. You, you know, I always like me a lager. I so would maybe say I'll maybe find some, some Shiraz. Some Shiraz. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yolanda. Riesling. 
Um, so I don't know. Have you ever celebrated Australia Day? Sorry. Um, not intentionally, but I probably have many times. Um, I have an aunt who's Australian or an, an auntie. And um, she lived in the States for a little bit. And I remember always going to her house and she would have that Marmite stuff around. What is that? Is somebody Google chatting? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Joe, are you Google chatting? <laughs> Who are you speaking to? I forgot. I have the volume up on both computers. I'm, I'm ruining your show. It's my oh, well, girlfriend. She says hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> is she Australian? What does she have to say about Australia Day? Has she um, ever had Marmite? Um, I, I'll have to ask her. I'll I'll leave the chat open. No, I won't. Sorry, I'm I'm gonna re- I'm gonna end this right now. Okay, you're fired. It's okay. okay. No, I love anyway, you. King of engineers, um, I love you. What I wanted to say about Marmite is that you know, as a kid, it was like this black kind of tar-like substance that's it's very salty and it was really um, an overwhelming flavor, not really like anything I'd had before. But I think nowadays, it's it's something that would be more compared to miso or you know it's that very it's like some umami it's umami and everyone is like trying to get that umami <laughs> so i think if it was introduced in a more substantial way into our cuisine um it would it would probably be really well received i no. bet i bet i would like it well also speaking of of something that i think should be very well received into our cuisine um as i said i was you know in in the airport obviously going to arizona from new york mm-hmm. Aaron and i missed our flight so we had to spend some time at, at JFK, and um, I would love to vacation there sometime. <laughs> Fourteen dollar Bloody Marys at uh, I can't remember the place it's called. I think it was called Cascata Ooh. is where we ended up in the American Airlines terminal, and I found a, a perfect what's on the menu at Chardonnay's. Never get over that. Um, But it was just, it was so, so true blue Chardonnays. The the dish is their their specialty, Cascata specialty mashed meatball burger with Mm. melted (laughs) cheddar, lettuce, tomato, pickle, onion. Can't forget any of those. It's a burger, for God's sakes. Yeah. Served with a side of tater tots. Well, you had me at tater tots. I mean, uh, of course. I mean, you had me at mashed, <laughs> mashed meatball. You had me at <laughs> Can we have one more? What's on the menu at Chardonnay's, Joe? <laughs> he hates us. What's on the menu at Chardonnay's? Do a little back up there. We we do have a guest in the studio today. Super excited about this gentleman. His name is Evan Lewandowski, and he is a winemaker for Ruth Lewandowski Wines in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes, you heard it correct. Salt Lake City, Utah. Evan, thanks for being on the morning after. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Really excited to, uh, to get talking to you about how you make your wine, the process of it, and the liquor laws of Utah. <laughs> yeah. So we will, we'll chat with you a little bit later in the show. Good. Um, and Sari actually uh, got up bright and early to uh to interview uh yeah, a chef from um, new orleans yeah i did chef justin devalier he was recently on top chef the the current top chef season that's still going the one that's based in new orleans he's also the chef of a restaurant in new orleans on magazine street it's called le petite grocery um so he's chef and co-owner with his wife of that so we're gonna hear the segment um of the interview that i did with him the pre-record I think we're going to take a quick yeah, break. Yeah, let's take a break. And Why we're going to come back and we're going to hear from Justin DeVillier. You are listening to Maurice Narcisse by Eula on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hey, 
And we're back. You're listening to The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, with the lovely Jesse Kiefer. Hello. Hello. Um, so we're in the back of Roberta's, and uh, we were just talking about how I had a little visit this weekend from Justin DeVillier. He was uh, a sh- a sh- he is a chef, um, but he was also a contestant on Top Chef, the one on um, the season that's currently taking place. It's almost over. Um, which is in New Orleans, right? Which is in New Orleans. And he also has a restaurant that he's the chef and co-owner of in New Orleans. It's called La Petite Grocery. So you might remember him as the guy with the beard and the hometown advantage. Um, so Justin was here in studio and I spoke with him bright and early the other morning. And uh, I'd like to play that recording for you so you can hear what we talked about. Whenever you're and ready, we're back. You're listening to The Morning After. This is your co-host, Sari Kamen, and I'm here with Chef Justin DeVillier. Hey, Justin. Hey. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming all the way from New Orleans to see us in sub-freezing New York. Yeah, of course. It's it's nice, kind of. It's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> this morning was um, challenging. So you're the host. I'm sorry. You're the chef at Le Petit Grocery. And you're a recent contestant from Top Chef New Orleans. Um, so I, I think I want to hear about your restaurant. I'm really, really interested in the food. I know you're, you're born in California. You've been in New Orleans for a really long time. Um, tell us about the concept of, of the menu there. Um, I think first and foremost, it's kind of, um, it started as a neighborhood restaurant. And, you know, we I think we maintain that still now, of course. Um, we've kind of broadened our reach a little bit but uh you know we kind of live in a little bubble right there on magazine street and we have um a garden at the church across the street and uh you know kind of right in the heart of the uptown neighborhood so we just try to you know kind of i guess the cooking philosophy would be kind of just that little hyper region we live in and just what inspires us around the neighborhood so more local than anything else yeah, at least the you know the thought process. I mean, we we definitely bring a lot of local stuff in, and we we make big you know big efforts to do that. But we also like to bring stuff in that is from you know different parts of the country, and and as long as it's really good product, we like to use it. How much of it is influenced by just traditional New Orleans cuisine? I, I think the thought process is very much um, right in line with how New Orleans is always cooked kind of you know we've always kind of cooked our own way down there and it, you know yeah. a lot of people call it creole or or whatnot and i think it's always kind of been though just a mix of everyone who has you know come to the city at one point or another yeah i mean new orleans is really interesting it's it's the only place that i've been in the united states that really has its own unique cuisine kind of like you know when you go to europe and you're in Paris, you're really eating Parisian food, or you know, in Tuscany, that's you're eating Tuscan food. New Orleans is is much um, si- is similar in that philosophy that it kind of has its own way. But it seems like you also take a little bit of um, you know leeway, or you've let your your influence from living in California or just you know traveling in other places be a part of that concept. Yeah, definitely. You know, influ- we have definitely have a lot of influence of you know the kind of the rest of the southern region. You know, although New Orleans definitely isn't, it's like a southern, it's a city in the south, but it's not really a southern city. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah. its own thing. Um, definitely, you know, some influences from my growing up in California from, like you said, travels and stuff like that. But really, you know, the seasons and, you know, the neighborhood and, of course, everyone that works in the kitchen, that's kind of where the inspiration comes from. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So you started there kind of um, right before Katrina, is that right? Yeah, I, I started uh, as a line cook in 2004. Okay, yeah, so you really were. Um, so can you talk about what happened with Krachina and what happened with the restaurant and, and your involvement with that? Yeah, um, so I actually had left Lofty Grocery in May of 2005, and I went to work at a different restaurant. Um, and then the whole Katrina thing happened in August, and when I got back... I kind of talked to the chef at, who was the chef at the time at Lofty Grocery and he didn't have a lot of staff because, you know, it was hard for a lot of people to make it back um, to town. And Did you leave at all? Yeah, I left for like two weeks. We it's, It kind of seemed like everyone had to. Yeah. You know, I, they kind of made, if you didn't leave, I think the people that didn't leave got some, they caught some flack from the government and stuff like that and people were getting kicked out of their houses. It got, you know, everyone saw how ugly all that stuff got, but 
um, we left for like two weeks and came back. The city was still kind of, you know, very much in in disarray, and there's National Guard and all that. Um, my apartment got completely flooded. My girlfriend at the time, who now is my wife, her house got completely flooded. So we didn't really have anywhere to go, and we wound up staying in this hotel in the French Quarter where the restaurant that I worked at was, and uh, it was a historic property, so they had generators that FEMA had brought in to kind of help this historic property not, you know, not get all moldy and stuff. So we stayed there and cooked on the sidewalk, you know, burgers and stuff like that. Um, but then, you know, as the city started to get electricity back and get all the services back and stuff like that, places started opening. And Lopti Grocery, like I was saying, the chef, the staff didn't really come back, still trying to make it back to the city. So I helped him reopen then and then kind of just have been there since. How bad a shape was the restaurant in? Uh, not bad. It, I mean, everything was intact. It didn't flood or anything like that. Oh. Um, just, a, you know, a cleanup project and kind of, you know, I think the biggest struggles for us at that time was just logistics of deliveries and services and, you know, because a lot goes in a restaurant, obviously. I mean, all the way down to, like, you know, the daily trash service and stuff. After Katrina, all that stuff was very hit or miss or very spotty. So Yeah. And then how did you end up becoming the executive chef? Uh, so in 2007, uh, the opening chef decided to go embark on his own project not far from La Petite, and um, I kind of got thrown into it. I wasn't, I wasn't hesitant, but I wasn't – there was still – I felt like there's still a lot of things I wanted to kind of do before I, you know, planted my feet and took a job like that. But, um, you know, it – I kind of went with my gut and did the, took the job, and it's, it's been great. I love it. Yeah. Did it, um, I mean, were you emotionally prepared for it, or you just kind of I mean, I think, yeah. for it? I think, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But yeah, because like you're 20, self-trained, right? Yeah, and I was 26 years old oh, wow. at the time when, and, you know, so I'd been cooking for about six years. And, um, but it's one of those things, you know, it's like, if I wouldn't have done it, I would have always wondered, you know, yeah. at least for a while, like, well, you know, I wonder what, you know, what that would have been like. But yeah. So, yeah, here I am now in 2009. Um, some of the original partners decided they wanted to sell their shares of the restaurant. So um, we bought those, too. So now we're majority partners and majority owners of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And what is the restaurant like now that you're the chef compared to what it was like when you first came on? Uh, in terms of, you know, the menu and the concepts? It's quite different. I mean, I think when I used to work there before, you know, before I was the chef, it was a little bit more grounded in traditional New orleans kind of food, like be- kind of New Orleans bistro-ish kind of food. A lot of stuff that you'd see at, um, you know, in the in the 90s and early 2000s at places like uh, uh Bistro at Maison de Ville or Peristyle or, you know, these restaurants that kind of, they were a big, big influence in the, in the 90s on New Orleans food, but I kind of felt like the food was a lot more like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the windows were closed with curtains, so it was very intimate and kind of private in there. Um, and we took the curtains down, we, you know, opened the place up a lot, uh, changed a lot of the lighting and a lot of the, a lot of the chairs and tables and the menus very much more uh, it just it changes every day pretty much so yeah. we have you know we have six we have a small menu of six items that changes every single day and then we have a large menu that changes about every six weeks yeah and you're cooking kind of um, from what I saw on top chef you have a, a really delicate touch and I think that that could separate you from you know maybe other chefs in New Orleans which the food tends to be you know very heavy very seasoned you have a very like a, a nice finesse about your food that um you know i i really like to kind of keep like stay minimal with ingredients mm-hmm. um i do lo- i mean i love rich food especially when it comes to like meat sauces and long braises and stuff like that but that being said i feel like that those can be pretty simple too yeah um but yeah definitely i like like three ingredient type things and very just very minimal Great. Uh, so I think it's inevitable that we talk a little bit about the show. If that's, that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so what was what was the experience like? I mean, you were in your hometown, and you know there was a lot of talk about you having a hometown advantage. How did it feel to be on that cooking show? And a lot of the times you went to events or to different restaurants where you had to compete, and you were you were serving your peers. Yeah, uh, it was funny because I did get to see a lot of people. You know, I recognized people around town and stuff like that, and uh, you know, couldn't really talk to them while we we're shooting. But uh, did it give you an extra sense of support to be around people that you know, or was it more intimidating because of it? I don't think either way. I mean, it's pretty, like, the competitions are so intense that, like, the challenges are so intense that, yeah, I didn't really think about, you know, too much about that. You're just in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, it's like, it kind of, if I was to explain it, if I was going to describe it, I'd say it's kind of like that, like, last hour before service, Mm -hmm. but for, like, six hours. That sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah, it's having been a server, yeah. that sounds so awful. <laughs> no, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. <laughs> I mean the the show should be called like Survivor, really, like Cooking Survivor. I mean this season, I maybe I don't know. I haven't seen all the seasons, but man, they work you guys to the bone. It's like no sleep till Brooklyn over there. Yeah, it's uh, is it's it intense. is it really as extreme as it seems? I mean, I I can only speak for myself, but it's a lot of fun. It. it it's a lot of work and but i think that's you know that's part of the fun of the competition i think yeah you know it's not like you know you're never hurting or anything it's just it's just working your ass off so yeah and then okay so what's it's it's still going on yeah the show Mm -hmm. although it's probably actually over but there's it's not really live is it i don't know you don't know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if i believe you (laughs) um okay did you do the the Top Chef kitchen afterwards? Yeah, Last Chance Kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was funny because they took, their whole thing was they wanted to take the home field advantage away. Uh-huh. So they took, they had the other guy who was who I was battling against, and they gave him New Orleans cuisine to cook, and then they gave me, he was from California, so they gave me California cuisine. So I was like, wait, you're taking the home field advantage away, but you're giving me, like, my other... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, he, he still whooped me, so it doesn't, I guess it didn't matter. Yeah. So what's life been like post the show? Um, I mean, I don't know. Besides, you know, you're doing interviews at radio stations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's been the same. I mean, you know, I will say it was, you know, it, it, getting back to normal routine was interesting. But, um, you know, after that, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. The dishes still pile up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you're getting more people coming into the restaurant or there's a bit of celebrity attached to it since you were in your hometown? Uh, yeah, I mean, people, everyone's really, really cool about it. You know, a lot of, um, I get a lot of kid fans, which is cool. Oh, nice. Cause I, I never really had a big, uh, a big clientele of, you know, young people, but it's, it's pretty cool. You get like, you know, 13, 14 year olds that watch the show and they come in and eat. It's kind of neat. And they're eating your food. Yeah. And they're all pumped on it, you know, oh, like, that's really yeah, cool. yeah. So, but everyone, yeah. I mean, the community in New Orleans has been great, you know. Yeah. Everyone always says something, but it's always nice. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a little bit funny and ironic because, you know, I just watched the episode that you went down for the college one. Yeah. And that you were, I mean, it was a good episode to, to go down for. Like, you had a really legitimate excuse. You're like, I never went to college. I don't know what they <laughs> eat. <laughs> yeah. And you gave college kids the benefit of the doubt that they would like more sophisticated food. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't even know if it was so much sophisticated that it's it was it's hard to cook out of a cafeteria i learned that much i can't even imagine and cooking for that many people yeah and you know cafeterias have some interesting ingredients in them but it was fun i mean you know i I always it's funny because i think about it about that day a lot like you know things i would have easily like hindsight's totally 2020 on that one like oh i would have done this i would have done that but um at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's what it is. That's why it's fun. It's because it's kind of a mind game as well as a, you know, physical yeah. cooking thing. Yeah. I'm always so impressed with how well people handle being sent home. Or at least that's the way that they show it on TV. You know, there's there's so much dignity there and pride and just humility, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing nothing you can really do about it, right? Exactly. And, and, yeah. yeah. But it's hard to be on camera, I'm sure, you know, just being that exposed when you're having to face just something that you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you guys did a good job. Yeah, those are pretty brutal. The uh, the judging tables are pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it looks that way. 
But I mean, it's good. I mean, I think, I think it's good to learn. You know, have you been watching the episodes? I wa- yeah, I watched all the ones that I was on. And then yeah, I watched. A, I think I've watched a couple since. But is uh, there anything that you saw in terms of like editing or the way you felt you were portrayed that you didn't think was necessarily accurate or was manipulated? No, That's I mean, good. I went in there with the kind of mindset of, you know, if I just totally be myself, regardless of. You know what that is. If I just completely be myself, then at least I'll be comfortable with it. Yeah. You know. Cool. Um, all right. It was really nice to have you. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up here. But um, cool. what are you? Are you uh, on a tour right now? For are you heading back to New Orleans? No, I was. We did a dinner last night at um, for the New Orleans Preservation Resource Center. Oh, great! And uh, it was a fundraiser in the city, so yeah, I was up for that, and then I'll be heading home. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm sure you, you've missed home for a while. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Chef Justin. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. It was really nice to meet you. And you're listening to The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You are listening to Oh Lord by Eula on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Check out Eula on February 1st at Death by Audio, 8 p.m. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Tom, 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 tom. <laughs> this is the morning after on Heritage Radio Network. That is, I think, going to be my intro to any wine person, som, sommelier, <laughs> pretending wine person, whatever you want to call them, um, from here on out. This person is not a pretender. Uh, Evan Lewandowski of Ruth Lewandowski Wines is in studio today. He has traveled, trekked all the way from Salt Lake City, Utah, where uh, he has a winery and he also manages a be- beverage program. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bom, 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 bom. So um, I guess I uh, just want to right out the gate say Salt Lake City is not synonymous with winemaking. No, um, no, it's so not. let me know, I guess, why Whoa. you are making <laughs> that wine there. Out of the room. Yeah. Oh, I feel. <laughs> A lot lighter. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so and it's not the Lambrusco we're drinking. <laughs> no, no. In the end, Salt Lake is not. It's not the the nexus of the winemaking universe. Not all wine roads meet in Salt Lake City. No. No, they really don't. Not at not at the Temple Temple Square. <laughs> um, but in the end, uh, it's a super long, convoluted story how it got me there. But um, as far as climate is concerned, um, the soil profile there. It's amazing. It really, really is amazing. I fell in love with it um, for for other reasons than wine straight away, um, but but came to wine along the way via interesting channels, a la Zev Ravine, um, one of my best buddies. Now my distributor here in New York, mm-hmm. um, and and this is this is where I'm at. I decided that this is what I wanted to do, uh, and I wanted to figure out if Utah was a viable place for growing world-class wines so are you from utah i am not i am not but i got there just as quick as i could um <laughs> i my dad my father was in the air force i was lucky enough to to bounce around every two years um with him and uh after graduating high school i was looking for for a place to ski um and the university of colorado at boulder was far too expensive and my father had heard that it was a crazy party school and so he was like yeah you know what you're not going to go there you need to figure something else out. So talking to my guidance counselor, 
Um, they actually do good things in high school. Uh, she, um, <laughs> yeah, the guidance counselors, literally, this I is... I can't remember that far back. No, I don't either. <laughs> um, you needed a guidance counselor, apparently. <laughs> yes. To guide you. So my guidance counselor guided me towards uh, the University of Utah. She said, you know, well, what about the Olympics? Those are happening next year. They've built new dorms, blah, blah, blah. They have skiing there. They're having the Winter Olympics, so I checked it out on the internet, and um, sure enough, the, the homepage said 11 ski resorts within 45 minutes. That's the only school I applied to. Um, my father and I went out for uh, a campus visit in, in late March, my senior year, and, and we pulled up to the admissions office, and it's just dumping, just puking snow. <laughs> and um, he looks over from the, pass- or from the, from the driver's seat, and he, he looks at me, and he's like, you're going here, right? And I'm like, just smile, like giddy, like, oh. yeah, I'm totally going here. And he goes, so we don't need to do this, do we? This admissions tour, this like check out the campus. And I'm like, nope. Yeah, let's go skiing. So we went skiing straight away. <laughs> and I've skied at that resort since since that day. Uh, that's my home resort, Brighton. Um, ski Brighton or BrightonResort.com. Go there. It's awesome. It's the best ever. Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. So I, I went there for skiing in the end, fell in love with the place, um, was working um, at a couple different little high-end restaurants as a busboy, um, and then moved up to server, was required to go to wine trainings, and f- was blown away, blown away by quality wine. The very first wines that I had at the, at the, at the wine training um, changed my life. To, to, to be able to say that uh, 2001 Robert Mondavi Fumé Blanc changed your life is a big call, <laughs> and it changed my freaking life. So, so yeah, so um, I just kind of uh, set off from there, um, went back. I graduated from University of Utah with a degree in physiology and French, and then um, went back to school, or I did an internship, actually. I was working at a wine bar with Zev Ravine. It was his first, his first business venture um, in Park City, Utah. Um, he hired me on uh, as a 21-year-old, um, I was certain that I needed to, to, to be in wine. I didn't know what it, what that took, what that meant. Um, but, but Zev had the coolest spot. So I went there. Um, he hired me on and, and through those connections, some dude walks in the bar. Um, Zev pulls me over and is like, you need to talk to this guy. You, you say you want to, to grow wine or, or make wine or do something and you don't know how to get into it. Talk to this guy right now. And he happened to be um, one of the upper ups in, a, in an organization called Communicating for Agriculture, which places, or CAEP, they place interns, uh, apprentices from all over the world in American wineries. Okay. And this was the first year that they were accepting American applications to work in American wineries. Um, I applied that day. Uh, he waived the application fee, so it was super easy for me. Um, applied that day, and I got, uh, I got my first apprenticeship that year. Um, for for a harvest gig, um, and for whatever reason, I didn't kill myself, and I continued on. I went back to school for viticulture, got a degree in, in uh, studied viticulture um, in Washington State, and I've just done apprenticeships all over the world, trying to figure out how Utah was going to work, what varieties I needed to grow, or or or, 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 or places that had similar soils, or places that um, uh, similar altitudes, because altitude's a big deal there. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the the vine habit, so um, yeah, so that that's the long drawn out story of, of of how Utah happened and 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 what my what my goal is there, um, yeah. Well, Utah. so at this at this moment, you you've put out your first vintage, which is twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. You are not currently growing grapes in Utah yet. I'm not. You have source fruit from Fox Hill Vineyard. In uh, in Mendocino, Mendo, correct? Mendo, Mendo, uh, which is cool climate, California. In the end, it can be Mendocino. Mendocino is is fairly large as far as a, a county is concerned. Uh, you've got Anderson Valley, and then mm-hmm. and then Mendocino Coast, Mendocino Ridges. Um, but where this fruit comes from is actually sort of 101 corridor, uh, just north, or, or it's about halfway in between Ukiah and Hopland on Old River Road, just up from um, the Fetzer the Fetzer facility. The the the, the big guys there. Uh, it's about two miles north of that. Um, it's on Talmadge Bench. It's 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 actually really stinking hot. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's very very warm there, um, but in a good way. Uh, but so so all the all the stuff that I that I source from Fox Hill, Fox Hill is um, it's this extremely cool, extremely cool place. Um, a gentleman named Lowell Stone planted it about twenty five years ago. 
Um, and basically, his goal, he was so enamored with Italian varieties that he got whatever he could at the time in California. So he's got this little, like, 1985 library of every single vine stock he could get uh, from UC Davis or from, from whatever nursery he could get or he could he could find. And, um, you know, he's got a, f- a bunch of different clones, Primitivo, um, Barbera, Dolcetto, Nebbiolo, Aglianico, Nero Davila, uh, just crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Lots of really, really you interesting things. You would not things. imagine it was growing in California. No, but, but then thinking about it, looking at the soil profile there, uplifted sandstone, really, really pebbly, well-drained, um, bereft of all nutrients. It's... Um, it's extremely cool. It's, it's very, very appropriate for, uh, for what he's doing. Um, and he was very, very smart about the whites that he planted. He planted Arnais, Cortese, and Tokai Friolano. Um, but the Arnais and the Cortese, he planted in this little clo, this little enclosure right butted up against um, Bureau of Land Management land. Um, didn't put a freaking deer fence around it, though, which is super annoying. Um, Do they like... The, the deer uh, loves Arnais. Which they like the Arnais. Deer it's loves, a little bit more floral uh, and yeah, aromatic. Yeah, right? succulent <laughs> and spicy. Um, yeah, so the deer love the Arnais and the bears love the Cortese. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, if you look at the labels, I was not necessarily a critter label person. Um, I kind of hated critter labels, but <laughs> I couldn't help but put dead deer and dead and dead bears on my labels. So. <laughs> um, so no, they're, they are sense. really they are really beautiful labels, and the labels do have a story. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. um, so I, I guess I want to get into your your process of wine, and then we'll talk about the label story. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I, I think that for for someone who works in wine, I very much understand what you're doing, but um, I think not everyone out there understands that not every person who makes wine also grows their own grapes. Um, not every person who makes wine owns a vineyard. So you are, you're purchasing fruit with the eventual idea that you will grow grapes in Utah. Exactly. But at the moment you're purchasing fruit in California. So you, you love the Fox Hill vineyard. You, you've found the, the right varieties for you. What do you do next? I don't know. Help. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I guess the, the, I just mean as in like the process of making the wine. Yeah. From there. So, so Fox Hill Vineyard, um, that's that's one source for fruit, um, Little Stone, and then the Testa Vineyard in uh, just north of north of Ukiah, made famous by Tony Cotori. He, he he made he made Testa Vineyard um, carrying on for years and years, and kind of put that on the map. I'm extremely lucky to be there at all. Even to even to even walk those vines is just extremely special for me because they're perfect perfect the 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 martinson family maria testa and her her husband rusty are potentially the best some of the best american farmers i think out there right now but humble that they would never know Mm it um which is the which is another another very endearing thing um and then the gibson ranch is where i get the grenache gris um made you know made famous by uh randall graham jared and tracy brent from knocking goat um two shepherds those guys are pulling fruit from there sam at at wild wines um, making some extremely cool things from there. Um, all that being said, those are those are extremely cool places. Those mm-hmm. are extremely cool vines. Um, really, really well cared for. Um, that that speak very, very clearly through the wines. But um, the dream is always Utah. Mm-hmm. So so uh, planting there is of utmost importance to me. I, I can't freaking wait to do it. Mm-hmm. That's where my passion lies. Mm-hmm. I love making wine. I love these vineyards. Like I said, but. Um, I'm, I'm just frothing to, to plant, to plant vineyards and to, to, to make booze out of, out of the Utah grown fruit, um, from these crazy soil profiles in, 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 in the Utah, the Utah area. Um, but so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's in the end, it's a, it's a beautiful, delicious means to an end. Um, planting is extremely long drawn out process. Mm-hmm. Um, if I order vines in April, April or May for this little parcel I'm looking at in, in Southern Utah, I order those in April or May, and the varieties that I'm looking for on their own rootstock that aren't grafted, um, they don't just, there's not just nurseries full of Kerner and Gruner and, and Riesling on their own So you're thinking like a kind of um, northern Italian, exactly. Austrian yep. kind of thing. Okay. So my, my time in Alto Adige really, really taught me a lot of things about Kerner and Riesling and their relationship to each other and how they grow. Um, Riesling's my passion. That's what I want to do in the end. Um, but, but Riesling is a very long growing season, white variety. Um, in fact, you go, you go to Alto Adige or you go to Alsace and that's the last thing they pick. Mm -hmm. Um, 
even if it's even if it's not in a, uh, a the dessert finger style finger lakes yeah it's super long it's it's a long growing season uh, white variety but very hardy in 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 the winter it's got really hard wood um um mm. sorry i got a little bit distracted when i said that <laughs> Um, it's got extremely hard wood. It's very, like I said, it's very cold hardy. It's cold hardy. That's where family I'm going show. with it. Yeah. Family show. Family show. Family no. show. So cold. Yeah. So cold hardy. But but again, it's it's tough. Those bookends in Utah can be very 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 crazy. You never know what you're going to get in the spring or the fall. It could be it could be sunny and 72, or it could be dumping snow and frigid. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask a question, Evan? Um, I'm just curious about those grapes that you're so interested in. Is it because those are the grapes you happen to love, or do you see like a similar terroir um, from Alto Adige to Utah, or right. have you experimented at all? L- luckily, Riesling's what I love, but Riesling is also, I think, very, very appropriate um, for the for the soils that that I'm looking at: sandstone, limestone, shale, a little bit of schist. Is anyone growing? Wine in Salt Lake City. In Salt yeah. Lake City, no, 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 no. Okay. Um, I mean, there's there's mom and pop vineyards, kind of right. backyards all over the shop, but um, in, in Southern Utah this is where you'll find like South Central Utah. There's a few vineyards here and there, um, but in Southern Utah, there's maybe sixty acres total, hmm. sixty five acres total, um, as opposed to California, which has about seven hundred fifty thousand acres under vine. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like Southwestern wine is is showing up it's there the is up. there's yeah. definitely i mean when aaron and i were in arizona arizona stronghold was truly the best yeah. wine that we could we were buying like it was it, you know pretty it's legit tried and stuff true. And yeah it, i will say that the arizona market is is hard to find you know things that we can find here but i i, I thought it was great and then uh, obviously grew a in Gruet. new mexico yeah so i mean it it, it makes yeah. sense it does make sense yeah to me um so as far as your your process your winemaking process goes so you um to say that you have a winery in Salt Lake City, but you have this fruit in California, that means that you're pressing the juice in California. And then tell me about like transporting sure. <laughs> juice across state lines. You can talk to What's my dad like? about that. My dad would give you a really good, a really good, uh, um, a really good idea of what that's like. Uh, Cause he's, he's a good, he's a big part of the process. Um, so it depends on the wine. So the Arnais um, Malin comes back as juice, like you said, um, Killian is my skin fermented white, um, that, that's made of hundred percent Cortese from the, the Fox Hill that comes back as must, which is juice and skins. And then Boaz is the red from 2012. And that comes back as whole cluster fruit. So I bring things back. I make things as complicated as possible for okay, myself because that's how I roll. Um, I couldn't do it any, any other way. And, and so, so, so I, I actually partner with a, a winery in, in California where I used to be the assistant winemaker. We're still really good friends, really good relationship. It's called Kivira. Uh, it's in Dry Creek Valley. Um, I, I stage things there. I go out to California for about eight weeks, ten weeks, um, and um, I'll pick pick the fruit, bring it back, press uh, press the arnais, get that into tank, um, and that that technically begins ferment fermentation um, in California. Um, starts bubbling, and then low like and then and then travels across Nevada in a sort of bubbly, happy state. Um, and then continues its fermentation, goes dry in in Utah. The Cortese uh, that comes to 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 Kivira at Dry Creek, um, and then is distemmed there. So take it off the stems um, and 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 put it in and put it into tank there, um, and then and that goes back across Nevada straight away, um, and, and and finishes its its fermentation process in in Utah, um, and it stays on its skins for an extremely long amount of time. Actually, the the, the Killian 2013 is still on its skins. As we speak, um, just chilling in Salt Lake City. Haven't pressed that yet. Um, and then the Boaz is picked and straight away to Salt Lake City from there, from from the Testa Vineyard. Um, yeah, that's 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 how that goes. And then everything, so everything everything ferments in Utah. Um, the cool thing about the way that I make wine is that there's not really anything else that I do. I, there, there's no uh, filtration. I don't have big machines. I don't have, I don't even have a plate and frame filter. Um, not that I'm necessarily uh, against plate and frame or against filtration. I just, uh, I haven't had the need for it and I don't have the money. So it works out. <laughs> <laughs> it works out really well. Natural wine works out really, really well. Uh, if for poor people. <laughs> if you're broke. If you're broke. Yeah. Um, and, I think that really speaks so highly of the farmers and mm-hmm. the people that grow it. Um, Lowell Stone and Maria Testa and, and, and the people behind the Gibson Ranch. It's, in the end, it's the Bilbro family. 
um, they they do they do really they do really well. Um, and and when your fruit is when your fruit is in the condition that it is when I when I when it's picked and put in my bins, um, uh, I'm super confident, extremely confident. In fact, it's it's almost terrifying because looking at it, you, you you think, well, I can only mess it up now. It's 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 so perfect. Um, I, I, for Maria, I've never seen better red fruit in my life, and I've seen a lot of red fruit. Um, it's, it's like jaw dropping how perfect her fruit is. Um, and so getting that, I can't help, but want to do nothing to it. Um, <laughs> so it ferments whole cluster, uh, you know, pigia or foot, foot trotting for a few days, then hand pigiage for, um, for a few weeks. And, and, and then I press it and then it hangs out and, it and fermentation starts by yeah. natural yeast. Yep. Yep. So in, in the end, g- getting super technical, I make, I make little pied de cuve, um, from the vineyards, going out to the vineyards, picking uh, trash cans full of of, um, of fruit, and then having that begin uh, having that begin fermentation, looking at uh, looking at that fermentation under the microscope, making sure that those yeasts are are um, are, are, are good yeasts, Saccharomyces ovoid shaped um, ovoid shaped yeast, not a, not a lot of bacteria, um, and 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 that's what I actually I actually do inoculate all of my fermentations, and not a lot of people know that a lot of natural wines are actually inoculated, but they're inoculated with themselves. Um, that's 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 how a lot of guys with roll the mother. with the mother culture. It's it, that's what it's about, and you you put that in um, because you can you can pick a trash can full of fruit and cross your fingers, twiddle your thumbs, and, and pray that, that 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 little fermentation goes well, or you can pick three tons and spend a sh- like a, a lot of money on on fruit. And and have that in a very vulnerable phase for four, five, eight days. Um, you pick the pea, the cuve. Look at that under the microscope. Don't be a dummy, and put that in in your fruit. And and then that will. And that's why everything's so clean. I feel mm-hmm. um, natural wine's awesome. If it's not clean, it's not awesome. It can be kind of dirty and awesome though. <laughs> <laughs> I totally know what you mean. There's definitely that. But um, I wanna I wanna talk about we we, we kind of mentioned earlier about your label, um, but I think first. Okay, your name is Evan Lewandowski. Your, you know, your wines are called Ruth Lewandowski. Who's Ruth? Ruth is not my girlfriend. Someone asked me the other day, so Ruth is your girlfriend? Is she gr- your grandma? No, not my grandma, not my mom, not my But who names their winery after a girlfriend? It's like getting a tattoo on your, like, <laughs> you're going to change that name, right? You're going to change the name better eventually. Better be your wife. <laughs> yeah, it's better, it's be gotta be your name. Yeah. That's your girlfriend? No. It's not my freaking girlfriend. No, Ruth is not my mom, girlfriend, um, or grandmother. Ruth is actually my favorite book in the Bible. Salt Lake City Wine. With a biblical <laughs> name. Biblical name. Imagine. Imagine that. Yep. <laughs> so Ruth, uh, it is, it is, it's in the Old Testament, uh, and it's a very, very concise, it's not a long book, um, for those that have very, very short attention spans. It's also a very sexy book, um, sort of a... Hey, watch it. My grandmother's name was Ruth. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the most beautiful, strongest, um, female character in the Bible, I think. She's, uh, an amazing, amazing person. Um, I think that book, that book really demonstrates, one the entire theme of the Bible, um, but also my heart for natural processes that, that happen in, in, in the world. I.e. death. I.e. death, yeah. So that death and tragedy and, or the cessation of things are 100% necessary for beginnings, for life, um, and for, for things to continue on. So death in the end is the engine that keeps things going, that keeps things moving forward. Um, death absolutely has to happen. You look at uh, the things that you eat, stuff had to die. Mm-hmm. Stuff had to die for, for you to put it in your face mm-hmm. um, and to keep you alive. Uh, or, or that that one thing that, that was so tragic in your life, um, that moved you forward and you learned from it and, and then new life came from it. Um, it's the same with the soil. Like there's nothing alive in the soil that didn't, that wasn't either either uh, that wasn't fed by something that died first. So, compost is a huge thing. The mm-hmm. regeneration of our um, extremely extremely um, messed up messed up farmland that requires death. That requires um, nutrients that are that are brought that are brought about through through the death of other other organisms. Um, 
so yeah, and and in the end, the, the on the label, you, um, it's it's basically an animal upside down. I mean, it's not like it's not a crime scene. There's not like it's not like <laughs> death. It's not super graphic, but it's not like murder to bears because they <laughs> ate my Cortese. Right, <laughs> exactly that jerk. Um, you know, it's an upside down an upside down animal with flowers coming out of its mouth. Um, it's a, it's a really beautiful label. Thanks. It yeah. is. I, I, I pulled I, my hair out over that. No, it's. Yeah. I think it's it's a shelf talker. Totally. It's uh, and it's an eye catcher for for anyone who sees the label. So, I mean, I think it, I think it makes sense. And, you know, with death comes life and it's definitely. So if anyone wants to sit and contemplate mm, that thought in the book of Ruth, yeah. <laughs> where, where can we find your wines? Can, so, can you order them directly from your website? You can absolutely. So my, my email, my, my cell phone, um, being that <laughs> little guy, it's all on the website, Ruth Lewandowski wines.com. Um, yeah, so you can you can you can place an order. I can ship I can ship directly to you, um, really really easily. It comes in six packs. Uh, it's the 2012 vintages vintages is pretty much sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, luck- congratulations! Thank you. It's crazy. It's crazy to think about. And and in the end, that's 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 another thing that that should be mentioned. Um, it, it it's here in New York. It's distributed by Zeb Ravine Selections. Um, and and the lovely people that work for him that do their job so stinking well. Um, that get they get this wine sold yeah so it's i mean it's in it's in accounts all over the city um which is flabbergasting uh to me to be sold here it's extremely cool um so yeah through through zev ravine uh and and in his little and his 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 minions and his empire his extremely small wine natural wine empire totally i love it well i mean i will i will come out and say that i sell the, the killian by the glass yeah. so uh it, terroir trebecca it's there y'all um, well, Evan, this has been fantastic talking to you, and I hope we get to speak with you next uh, when you've planted fruit in Utah oh and gosh, you're making wine from that. I can't wait. Give me 10 years. All right. <laughs> we'll be here. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm so kind much. of signing off for, for a couple weeks. Yeah. Next week, we're going to take a, a Super Bowl break. Uh, Sari's going to go investigate if we can find any Velveeta out there. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be reporting live from the scene <laughs> on my Twitter account. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then, and I will be headed off to France. So uh, we will be back here on the 9th. Yeah, I'll be here. And, um, and I will be in France. Mm. And right. we will be here and we will miss you. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> this is the morning after on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.